0: Welcome Good morning, Church. Good morning, Church. Good morning. It's great to be here. It's great to be in Texas. Uh, I gotta tell you, you know, Texas is really growing on my heart in uh, so many ways. Uh, you know, I'm a Californian, but but is you know, just a stone's throw from El Paso, which is in Texas, right? So I'm almost a Texan, almost, close, close. Uh, it's great to be here, you know, it's a special treat to get to, to meet this part of the church. I got to meet the whole church at one of the big congregational services we had, but but uh, I love this kind of setting, what a great place you have. And, and, and for Michelle and I, it's very special to be able to be here with the Mancini's today. Uh, they're just amazing kingdom people, they're amazing people people in the fellowship and the history of our church uh you don't know it you don't know especially if you haven't been around like since the since the ice age like i have that 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 they're just legendary and so many of my closest friends were actually became christians in their campus ministries and mark and connie are just famous uh around uh, around our fellowship for doing so many great works and serving god in such an incredible way and i'm thankful for them and for you for how much you guys have supported Hope Worldwide throughout the years. Uh, You guys are huge in in the Hope World. The Dallas Church is a heroic church. It's a pillar church. So many great things happening around the world because of your hearts. And uh, and it's always a joy to be able to share any of that that I can. Um, You know, I bring you greetings from the San Diego Church. I got to be there last weekend. That's our home church. Uh, I also bring you greetings from the Seattle Church. I was there the week before that. Uh, I also bring you greetings from the Buenos Aires Church. I was there the week before that. I also bring you greetings from the La Paz Bolivia Church. I was there the week before that. And I'll just stop right there, okay? But, you know, I bounce around the world. Michelle and I get to see so many different parts of the kingdom, so many different parts of our fellowship. And, and, and what a joy it is because, you know, we really are just a worldwide family incredible you know And this week being downtown dallas with brothers and sisters from all over the world and seeing, you know we really are all the same i mean god has really made us into one body one people with one heart and one voice and it doesn't matter where you come from doesn't matter color of your skin doesn't matter the language you speak we're just the family of jesus and what a great thing it is what a great privilege to be part of that um, I want to share a little bit about the heart of Jesus. About God's heart. About Jesus' heart. You know, it's it's really uh, a blessing to me to be able to go around and, and visit the different works and see how we're doing around the world in serving the poor. It's eye-opening. It's heart-wrenching sometimes. It's deeply moving. And both the sadness and the pain that's out there, but also the incredible miracles of followers of Jesus out serving and loving those who are hurting and those who are lost. You know, I think about, um, I'm not sure if I'm reaching the clicker out here. Can I go to the next slide? I think about our world right now. And, you know, there's there's times where you just kind of trek along in life, and then there's times where where you know you're in a special time period. And I think right now, that time, this time that we live in, is a very special time period. The world is changing dramatically right now. And we see it before our eyes. I mean, the world is so radically different than even just a few years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And... I think that if Jesus doesn't come back in the next 500 years, which could happen, or he could come back before 12 o'clock today, he might. He might. But he might not come back for a long time. And let's go to the next slide. And if he doesn't come back for a long time, I think people in the future will look back and study this time period, much the same way we study the Renaissance, the much the same way we study the invention of the printing press, when Gutenberg invented the printing press and how that just revolutionized the world. Or much the same way we study the time when, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 thesis on the walls of the, of the Wittenberg uh, uh, castle and that revolutionized the religious world. In many ways, that's happening right now because of the internet, because of smartphones. It's incredible that we're connected. Something happens on the other side of the planet. Three minutes later, I know about it. I know about it. And our world is being connected in ways, and that's causing a revolution and a a huge, dramatic change on so many levels. Socially, we're changing. Uh, Economically, we're changing. Politically, we're changing. Environmentally, we're even changing. Just all these different ways that our world is being impacted right now and we see it in for and before us. And a lot of it being driven by technology. But not only the technological side, not only the environmental or the economical or political or any of that stuff, but even spiritually, the world is changing right now. People are looking at Christianity different. To me, it's an exciting time because it's a time where people are asking deep questions. And we, get, and we have the answers. We know the situation. But I want us to stop for just a second. And think about the world. You know, Romans, Paul wrote, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We know our world is going through a lot right now. And uh, this is one of those mysterious scriptures because we don't really know what exactly is the connection between physical pain, emotional pain, and environmental pain. <laughs> the world. Is groaning, it says. Actually, it's creation is groaning. And a couple of sentences later, he says that the people of God are groaning in anticipation of what is to come. He says the Holy Spirit is groaning in anticipation of what is to come. And we know that we're in a dramatic time right now. So why don't you just stop and think about what would it be like to see the world from God's perspective? I mean, it's a beautiful planet, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a gorgeous planet. I mean, it's just covered with oceans and blue and green. And there's 7.5 billion people on this planet. And God knows every single one of them. Every single one of them. And, you know, no matter where I go, no matter what planet, no matter I mean, what planet, not what planet, what country. <laughs> For the record, I stay on one planet, all right? No matter what country, All the people, I see this one scripture pop up all the time. Jeremiah 29, what? 11. You knew it. What does it say? For for I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you hope in a future, right? Not to harm you. I think that one's even replacing John 3.16. At least in our fellowship it is. Because it's a scripture of hope. It's a scripture where God is promising something profound and powerful for us. What we want, what we all want, is hope for a better future. And yeah, I know, it's, it, it's a scripture, it's a prophet from the 6th century, speaking to Jerusalem in Judah during a, a very tumultuous time in their history. But everything I know about God, everything I know about scriptures tells me that that promise is for every single one of us. Every single one of us is loved by God. You are loved by God. No, I mean it. You are loved by God. And those hopes and dreams he has for you and the other 7.4 billion people on this planet, which actually, since I made that slide, it's now 7.5. Every one of them. He says, imagine for a second hearing what God hears. The prayers of the people. Even for two minutes. All the prayers of a parent next to a sick child. All the prayers of a spouse in an emergency room, waiting to find out how their spouse is doing. All the prayers of a family for a sick family member. All the prayers of a young man sitting in the back of a police squad car or his parents. All the prayers of children around the world that live in world war and war-torn nations. Imagine just for a minute to hear all these prayers that God hears. And unfortunately, most of the prayers he hears are prayers of desperation. Because that's when most people pray. When they're desperate. When they're afraid. When they're scared. Imagine how sweet the sound of somebody who's just praising him. Or somebody who's just thanking him. Somebody who's just saying, God, I love you. But most of what he hears is desperate pleas. All the prayers he hears of 30 million refugee children around the world and their prayers. And God hears all their prayers and it doesn't matter what language, it doesn't even matter what religion, he loves them all. He loves every single one because they're all his children. The prayers he hears of the 158 million children who experience stunted growth from poverty because they're malnutrition, because they're not stimulated in a way that their brains can can form and progress so that they're ready for school and so they won't make it in school. And they'll drop out and they're stuck in the vicious cycles of poverty and they oftentimes have to find desperate ways to survive that you and I wouldn't even think of. The millions, the millions of children in human trafficking, their prayer. The prayers of their parents who only know that they disappeared and have no idea what happened with them. And the explosion of human trafficking among children, which only a few years ago was 10% and now represents children represent 34% of those in human trafficking. For the 2.4 billion people who have no access to clean water, I was taken to, to meet in a, uh, just outside of a village in India, And they have nothing. I mean, they have no no sanitation, no clean water. And they live out there, and they scratch out a survival day after day. And that consumes every day is just finding something to eat. And they are the poor of the extreme poor. Or the thousands of children forced into becoming murdering soldiers. They're kidnapped. And oftentimes the first thing they're forced to do is to kill or maim a family member so that their hearts can be hardened. Hardened or the prayers of the four children who die every day in our country from abuse or the prayers of a nation struggling with racism, with social and political divisions, the prayers even of disciples being challenged by differing political views to keep our eyes focused on Jesus our Savior, our Lord, and to keep following him. And the prayers of the the elders for the church to stay united and be one and love one another. The prayers of those all around the world who have suffered loss from terrorism or the fear that they carried, sending their kids off to school. The fears that we all have of what could go wrong, what could happen, Things that would happen before once every two or three years now happen daily on the news. People murdering people because of hatred. People killing each other because of racism. People hurting each other because religious differences. The hurts that people carry around. I know by the size of this room, there are dozens of people in this room who've had to survive and overcome being abused emotionally, physically, sexually and God hears those prayers the prayers of struggling with temptation or weakness or struggles or sins and etc etc God has to hear all of this I mean don't you just thank God you're not God I mean what God hears and listens to and you think I mean it can be overwhelming it can be depressing some of you looking at me like that like whoa stop there's so much out there but take heart Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, here's the good news, is that all the problems of the world and the problems that we face, the problems we deal with, and the problems we know about them, Jesus overcame them. He overcame them. Why is, you know, it's funny, people ask me, people have asked me, well, how do you feel stepping out of the ministry? I didn't step out of the ministry. I just stepped into a different spot of the ministry. Helping the poor, helping the suffering is totally part of Jesus' ministry. If you spent a day with Jesus, guess what you'd be doing all day? Yeah, you'd be doing some preaching. You might cast out a demon or two. But you'd also be touching lepers. Feeding hungry people. When the apostles came to Jesus and said, send them away. We don't have enough food to feed them. Send them away. Jesus turned around and said, you feed them. You help them. Because that's what a disciple of Jesus does. He loves and serves. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God. Trust also in me. You know, I just went to a meeting in the United Nations. Where they gathered world leaders from all over the world, they gathered uh, nonprofit organizational leaders, they gathered corporate leaders to solve the problems of the world. And there's some big problems out there. What do you do with 125 million people who've been displaced by war and disasters? What do you do with them? And they're out marching, they're walking, they're desperately looking for safety for their children, they're leaving their countries, they're heading north, they're heading to other countries how do you take care of all these people or feed all these hungry people with the population explosion, all these things? And yet I I walk around, I'm amazed. One, that they want to help and that is so inspiring. But two, because we know the answer. It's Jesus. It's people who love God that make a difference. The heart of God. There's a scripture in the Old Testament. It's a very important scripture. Hosea 6 6. You might know it already. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. It's a very profound scripture. It actually presents a theological problem that has to be solved, that has to be figured out. See, because he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, who asked for sacrifice? Sacrifice. But now he's saying, what I desire, what I really want is mercy, not sacrifice. You have to think about that one. Wait, but, so you want me to do this, but you really want this. You want me to accomplish this, But God, what you really want is this. What's really important to you. And I'll tell you why. You know why this scripture is so important? Because Jesus quoted it. Three times he talked about this scripture. And you know, when when anybody tells you something twice, that usually means something. When they tell you three times, that really means something. When your mom told you something the third time Usually it was louder and stronger than the first two, right? And for me, it was often accompanied by my entire name. Robert Hector Morris Carrillo, levante de los zapatos. (laughs) The third time, right? The third time. So Jesus, three times, two times he says, three times he tells them, find out what this means or understand this. Or get this down. Now, if anybody tells you something three times, we should pay attention. But if Jesus tells you something three times, I used to have a professor, a history professor. And he told us, everything on the test, I will say two times. So he'd be talking and he'd be saying, yeah, the Spanish Inquisition, you know, began in Seville. They spread through Granada. In 1492, it was wrapped up. In 1492, it was wrapped up. And, wrapped up, and then everybody would start writing down because he repeated it. And you knew it was going to be on the final exam. When Jesus repeats himself, I guarantee you it's on the final exam. First time. First time. Matthew chapter 9. Let's go there. Turn on your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. First time he says it. who need a doctor but the sick but go and learn what this means i desire mercy not sacrifice for i have not come to call the righteous but sinners now you have to understand the background to this because this is an incredibly important moment in Jesus' ministry it's a moment that totally inspires me Jesus is forming his team to change the world. Jesus is calling those that would become his apostles, that would lead his disciples around the world to change the world. And he goes through this town and he sees this guy. Now think about this guy. This is a guy who grew up in the church. This is a guy, okay, they didn't call it the church, but actually it was called the church the people of God, the community of God. And he grew up hearing all the great stories. He had family devotionals every Friday. He grew up, he knew about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He knew about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. He knew about Joshua and marching around Jericho. He knew about David taking out Goliath. He knew all the great stories. But something went wrong in his life. And he turned his back on his faith. Something went wrong and he turned away from God. We would call that a kingdom kid who fell away. That turned away. And he walks away and, and I suspect that even something bigger and deeper is happening inside him. Maybe, I mean, now he's working for the Romans to tax his own people. Why would anybody do that? Maybe he was angry. Maybe he was angry at the church. Maybe he was angry at God's people. Maybe he was hurt. Maybe he was bitter. Something happened that he turned away and he was hurting God's people. Maybe he was abused. Maybe he was just disappointed. Maybe he didn't feel loved. I don't know. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what happened to him. But somehow he turned away and he walked away Maybe maybe his family was embarrassed of him. He's the one who failed spiritually. They had large families. Maybe all the other kids were faithful, but he wasn't. And maybe they didn't invite him to all the family gatherings. Maybe he didn't get invited to all the weddings. Maybe the whole village was embarrassed by him. He works for the Romans. Maybe that's why he was bitter. We don't know. But something went terribly wrong in his life. Is he the guy that you would pick to plant a church somewhere? And yet Jesus looks at him and says, I want you on my team. You see, that's Jesus' style of love. That's Jesus' strength of love don't care how much you've messed up. don't care how much you've blown it. I love you. That's the power of Jesus' love. And we know that later, Matthew would go on to become one of the great evangelists that would plant churches all across the Middle East. But somebody had to love him intensely to win him. The Pharisees, they didn't get it. Why would you love a guy like that? What are you doing here, Jesus? You're supposed to be holy. Why are you hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, quote, unquote? And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know why this means so much to me? Because I was spiritually sick. Like Matthew, I had spiritually blown it. Like Matthew, I was a spiritual loser. I'd failed. You were you grew up in the church? No, I grew up in a traditional religion, but I knew who Jesus was. I knew he died on the cross for me. And I was still turning my back and out partying and giving my heart and my life to the world. I had spiritually failed. And yet, Jesus was You see, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who spiritually failed and know it, and those who spiritually failed and don't know it. We have this incredible ability to come out of baptism clean and shiny and then turn around and start pointing fingers at other people. You're a mess. You're a loser. You're a loser. You don't understand. You don't know. You don't know. And look down on other people. It's the sin of Christianity being judgmental. But Jesus, the most righteous man in the world, the only one who had the right to say, you're all losers, didn't say that. He pointed fingers and he didn't say, you're a loser. He said, I love you. And I want you on my team. That's love. Jesus' style. The second time he says it is in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, we read, well, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's, it's a great chapter. You can read it tomorrow, but we'll read the, We'll get to the end of it. In 13, okay. So you know what's happening? Jesus is walking across the field with his disciples. They start eating wheat. They're hungry. There's no 7-Eleven or McDonald's around, so they grab some wheat. They start chewing on the wheat. They're hungry, and then the, then they start criticizing him for, it. hey, it's the Sabbath. You know, the rules of the Sabbath, are you're not supposed to be picking wheat on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read that David did what, what David, haven't you read what David did when he, he, his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests in the Sabbath day and the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, and there it is again, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now the interesting thing is, the fact is they weren't really breaking the law, because the laws did not work on the Sabbath. They were picking wheat. But the law had been interpreted as, don't pick wheat on Sabbath. And so they were picking wheat. So it really wasn't God's law. It was really their law, their tradition, their rules, their expectations that they were breaking. He didn't even address that. He says, look, hey, I'm above them, right? Don't worry about it. But then later on, he tells